the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, today on the podcast, I've got Ben Higgins. Some of you may know him from The Bachelor. And uh, well, we get into a really fascinating conversation about the underbelly of celebrity, being almost famous, which is also his podcast, The Backstory of The Bachelor, which I've never watched a Bachelor, but I found interesting. The most Googled breakup on the internet and the difference between real friends and deal friends. Uh, This is for those of you who ever put a microphone on or have a little bit of a public profile. You're going to love this episode. And it's brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy. If you're interested in leading your team better, navigating change, and creating a super healthy culture at your church, I got a free resource called The Leadership Accelerator. Visit leadershipaccelerator.church or click the link in the description of this episode. And it's brought to you by He Gets Us. Remember the Jesus ads that went live during the Super Bowl? Uh, You're gonna hear more about that in just a few minutes and how they were received. And uh, in the meantime, the Almost Famous Podcast co-host and Bachelor alumnus Ben Higgins joins us on the podcast. He is best known for starring in season 20 of ABC's hit series, The Bachelor. Again, never watched an episode. I confess that with him. But I'm always interested in like, what does that do to you? Like, what happens to you when you have that level of popularity? He has a lot of popularity and he's leveraging it now to share what he's most passionate about, his faith, his hope for humanity, uh, the mission to help organize connect more deeply with employees and customers and a lot more. But I'll tell you, this has been a really delightful interview. I think you're going to love it. Well, you know what, leaders? It's never too late to better your leadership. And a general rule I follow is that I have to invest in my own leadership or else I don't grow. So I want to help you with that. And if you think about team leadership right now, think about the complexity of what you're doing. Turnover is still high. Your team sometimes is motivated, sometimes is not. You're dealing with a lot of change. So if you want some effective strategies for leading your team members to really develop their full potential, navigate the change you're facing, and create a super healthy, non-toxic culture at your church or organization, you might be interested in my free Leadership Accelerator. The Accelerator is a series of videos, checklists, and guides that will teach you key concepts in each of those areas. So it's completely free and it covers engaging your team, leading change, creating a healthy culture. Here's how you get it. Go to leadershipaccelerator.church or simply click the link in the description of this episode wherever you're listening. Again, that's leadershipaccelerator.church. You'll get instant access. And no doubt, you probably by this time heard about He Gets Us and their Super Bowl ads. Well, the ads ran during the big game, but what happened after that? So I sat down with Brad Hill, the chief solutions officer from Glue, to discuss how the ads were received. So here's what Brad had to say. Yeah, Kerry, we, as you know, He Gets Us is not selling anything at the Super Bowl, selling beer, not selling electric vehicles. Um, We really were just looking to start conversation out of a field of 54 ads, uh, he gets us had two, two different ads that finished eighth and 15th place. Wow. We were thrilled. I think more interesting for us is he gets us as the most talked about ad from the Super Bowl. Wow. In other words, like more conversation, more buzz about that ad than anything else in the game, which was mission accomplished. How were the ads received in the media? There were a number of different reactions to them. 
There were, yes. And um, as you might have seen, Carrie, the, the reactions span the spectrum. So <laughs> you had folks uh, from left, right, middle, up, down, everywhere, uh, really with their own questions, sometimes support, sometimes questions or criticism of the ad. And, you know, what's striking to me is uh, even looking back in the Gospels, looking at how folks reacted to Jesus himself. He's a very complex figure. And um, all that he gets us is trying to do is put this message of Jesus' love out there. And you may have seen in the Super Bowl, the ads literally carried a message of love your enemies or act, be childlike, you know, <laughs> act less like an adult, more like a child. And so those are, those are values that most people, I think, uh, can agree on. The, the articles, though, tend to focus on what's behind it and what's the idea behind this campaign. And so we've, we've been steering folks back to Jesus, but we're thrilled. You know, somebody said, when you get attacks from the left, from the right, when you get support from all directions— you might be on the right track. If you want to learn more about the He Gets Us campaign, check out hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. And now my conversation with Ben Higgins. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Carrie, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. We got some mutual friends and this is a little bit of a different interview for me. So, mm. you know, this can be a deal breaker. You can say shortest interview in podcast history. I've never watched a single episode of The Bachelor. I've seen highlights. I've heard all the buzz. Um, hope that's not a deal breaker. But I am very interested in what happened there and the route that got you to The Bachelor. The show, first The Bachelorette, yeah. I guess, and then The Bachelor, because you got your university degree in public affairs, right? So yeah. can, you, can you trace out the breadcrumbs for us? Yeah, definitely. Well, first off, uh, I, I don't feel like you're missing anything when it comes to the the value and essence of life if you haven't seen the show. So I don't I take no offense to it. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a, in short my highlights of this. Um, after college, I moved down to uh, Peru, South America, to get away. Uh, I didn't really have a job offer out of college, and uh, it was a tough job market in tw- uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. And, but I left with somebody, um, well, I went with my buddy, but I, I left my girlfriend back home who I thought was going to be my, uh, forever partner. And when I left, uh, things went south fairly quickly and, uh, and she ended the relationship and kind of told me at the time, you're never going to leave home. I'm an only child. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from, uh, Northern Indiana. I love my family. I was very comfortable. And she was in a lot of ways, right. You know, Peru was a very short term stop for me, but it hit to my core because one thing growing up being an only child, I always took a lot of pride in my independence. And also my parents always implemented in me, um, I'm an only child based on some medical issues that they had. Hmm. And so they never wanted me to be that, Hey, you get everything, you get all the attention. You're, you know, you feel like you're king of the world kind of, uh, mentality. And they really kind of went the opposite on that. Um, they really implemented in me that I'm not king of the world. I'm not going to get everything. Uh, and so it hit to my core really when she said it, she said the one thing that maybe I was most sensitive to at the time. Mm. So I moved back to the U S uh, found a job in Denver, Colorado, uh, moved out and I was working for a software company. Uh, and I was writing user manuals for a back office, uh, settlement and clearing software. So for all those who just fell asleep, uh, um, when you make a trade online of a stock or a bond or any type of security, 
there's a lot that goes into the back end of making sure that that settles well. Well, our software does that for a lot of the brokerage firms. So I was writing the user manual for all the operators. Now, if you just take a second and glance at my life now, I really do enjoy talking. I really love meeting people. I enjoy having conversations that feel life-giving. And I enjoy creating stories and having adventure. Like I thrive off this stuff. Sitting in the basement writing a user manual for a software that nobody ever saw and nobody ever knew of doesn't exactly fitting my skill set or my passions yeah. or purpose. But at the time, I kind of had this mentality, it's work, you know? Mm. You got to do what you got to do. And this is the only job that was really there. And it moved me from home. Well, I was young. I was 24. And uh, um, just kind of, I moved to Denver with no friends, didn't know anybody out here, was working a lot. And my marketing director came up to me one day. Uh, at the company. And she said, Ben, you're 24 years old. You don't like your job. It's very obvious. Um, quite frankly, you're not very good at it. <laughs> That's fair. Thank you. Um, and she goes, you're not dating. You're not out in the world. You need to start creating something, some stories like you're 24. And she said, there's this show that I love and that I watch. And obviously it was the bachelorette at the time. And I had seen it with my mom growing up. Um, I hadn't seen it in a few seasons. And she said, they have a casting call in Denver today. I'm going to take you to lunch. I want to take you to this casting call. So I'm not going to a casting call. I'm not standing in the line with a bunch of people who are all looking to find their partner and hoping, you know, that my name gets picked. She goes, okay, well, we can sign you up online. Will you sit with me and we'll sign you up online? I said, I would. So we signed up online a few weeks later. Long story short, they called, kind of went through the process of, of doing that. And finally, they asked me, hey, do you want to come on The Bachelorette? Do you want to come on the show? And there was a lot in me that said, yes, right? Uh, This is new. This is exciting. This is cool. But you don't get paid to go on The Bachelorette. (laughs) And so I had, there's a lot of hurdles I had to jump. And I remember, and, and, you know, Carrie, one thing that I'll I'll probably say multiple times, I don't want to over-spiritualize or over-Christianize these moments in life. Um, I think God has a hand in it and a part of it, but I don't, you know, I don't want to come off holier than now, but the only prayer that I prayed and the only thing I knew what to do at the time, because I was out here alone was I prayed, God, there's so much in me that wants to do this, that feels like it could be fun. But if this is not something good for me, please close one door. Hmm. Like just make it very obvious because I'm too, I'm too dumb and I'm too wrapped up in it um, to, to not have some type of like very clear signal or sign or something. And uh, my job said, hey, take a four-month sabbatical. Go do it. You need to do this. Uh, my family, even though hesitant, was like, hey, why not? Give it a shot. My friends called me king of the nerds um, and said, go give it a shot. And so no door that was obvious to me was closing. So I said yes to going on the show. And um, that year, I found myself pulling up in a limo in Los Angeles. I'd never been to LA before. And, uh, and with cameras and lights and that's my story on The Bachelorette. Obviously, from there, there isn't a, a lot of great story, just that I was on it and um, had a great experience and felt like uh, I made great uh, connections with friends. And uh, following that show is when they asked me, do you want to be The Bachelor? Um, which is typically how it works. If you haven't seen the show, you know, if you've hmm. been around a while on The Bachelorette, you make it to the kind of the end. Somebody from that group gets asked to be The Bachelor and they asked me and, and I said yes to that uh, for the same purposes. But also there is... Um, I think there was a part of me that was excited about the opportunity and then also um, saw that um, a lot of good 
if for my own life could come from it, you know, even if maybe the show didn't work out that, um, there, you know, there's new opportunities. There's a platform handed to you, um, that would come. And so that takes us into a whole new story that I'll pause there with, but that's really how the bachelor happened. So four months sabbatical, I just, I want to pick up the story, yeah. but that's really interesting. So is it that much work? Like you're not flying in, flying out. You're just kind of in that bubble for months on end. Oh yeah. You want you show up to the house, you're, um, closed off in the world, no phone, no computer, wow. um, no books even, um, for, um, for really three months, um, is, is how long it takes, but there's some, uh, there's some mental healing typically that needs to happen post show. And so that extra month was kind of built in for me to get back and be in the world again, call my family again, call my friends again, you know, go out to mm -hmm. dinner. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, you're very much in a closed off environment. You, you are not, you have no contact with the world. So I have to ask you, everybody says, you know, Hey, I'm taking a one week sabbatical off social and they make this big deal of it. Yeah. Three, four months. Like that's insane. And you can't read. I'm like, okay, great chance to catch up on books. You can't even read books. Like what's, no. what's going on? Well, you know, it's, it's something that's really been amazing for me. Uh -huh. Um, you have 30, you have 30 people from all over the world with all different backgrounds, uh, coming together in one house. And the only thing you have to do is talk. Hmm. So you sit and you talk to people and you entertain yourself with their life stories and your own life stories. And you play games and you make up different games and you, you talk. Um, for three months and that's it. And it's, it's incredible. Now, granted at the time too, this was 2016. Um, as shocking as that seems, Instagram hadn't really taken off yet. Uh, it mm -hmm. was still very much in, in the startup phase. Uh, there wasn't a, uh, Facebook obviously was around, but there wasn't a massive like social media, um, habit for me at the time because it was so new. Uh, but yeah, so you talk to entertain yourself, you talk. Wow. And then like, do you get out to restaurants or it's pretty much everything's catered in or, or. Yeah, you're catered in, you don't leave. So when you start <laughs> traveling the world, uh, there's this like amazing moment for every contestant when you first travel and you go through an airport and you see other humans and you see restaurants that you haven't seen. Uh, but then once you get to the location, you're typically in a hotel room, which is a big suite or a villa, um, but you're in that villa. You don't leave that villa unless you're going on a date. You're, you're there. Uh, there is no restaurants. There's no outside contact uh, with the world. So no, you are locked in. Okay. I did not know that. So that's interesting. So on The Bachelorette, you're locked in with a whole bunch of mm -hmm. guys who are pursuing a woman. What's that like when you're The Bachelor? Like, are you just chatting with the women all the time yeah. or are you with the crew or how does that work? Uh, both. And yeah. you have a little more freedom when you're the bachelor. Uh, they take you out to dinners. Uh, you know, the, the big thing I think for them, at least back then was the contestants. They kind of wanted to keep secret who was still around and who wasn't, who had gotten oh, sent home okay. and who didn't. Yeah. So when you're the bachelor, it's pretty known that you're going to be around. At least that's their hope uh, when they choose you. And so you have a little bit more freedom. You spend a lot of time with the crew. Uh, you have a handler. You have a few handlers that kind of make sure you have your needs met, um, the producers. And then you're going on dates every day. By the time you're done with the show, you've gone on 40 different dates. Um, 
And that's every day, uh, pretty much other than travel days and maybe a day for the crew to take a break. So you're exhausted. Um, when you're not with people, you're probably sleeping. Um, and you know, for me, because I'm an only child, my, my alone time is very important to me still is to this day, even though I'm married. Uh, but the show really likes to uh, make sure you're uneasy, maybe at times, uh, make sure you're not just comfortable. And so they always had somebody with me. Uh, they made sure there was always somebody around to, uh, to watch over me and to make sure that I wasn't just getting my respite and my like mental healing time. They wanted <laughs> to be talking to me. And as an introvert, um, oh, geez, yeah, very it sounds difficult. like a nightmare. Really does. It, it, going back, it was, you know, a few, yeah. I was, you know, after um, a few years on the show, I was single again and they asked if I would come back or consider coming back. And that was really my deal breaker when I said no. Um, it was, I can't mentally go through three and a half, four months of having somebody by my side all the time uh, that would drive me crazy. I was good at it in my early 20s. I don't think I'd be great at it in my later 20s. So you don't get paid to be on The Bachelorette. Do you get any kind of compensation for being on The Bachelor or it just kind of, yeah. quote, launches you? Uh, no, you do. Uh, okay. It's nothing It's nothing to brag about and it's nothing that would help you retire. Uh, but it is, it is a fair, comp- I feel like it's a fair compensation for the amount of time put in because you are, uh, for a year of your life, kind of the face of that show. You are doing a lot of media and PR for them. Uh, you're you're traveling for them. You're more of an employee of the show at that point than you were as a contestant. Gotcha. And that's still about a four month incubator, like a four month of filming. And then the year where you're the tour of duty. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I still worked through it. And so it was a really weird, uh, life season for me where I was coming to Denver, sitting in my cubicle. Uh, I had moved at that point to sales, uh, because it was obviously a, a very, um, good next step for me. And also, you know, there was some excitement around the show. And so some of our clients would maybe, um, be a little more excited to see me than than they were a year before. Um, so I was working, I had agreed to work Monday through Thursday here in Denver. And I would jump on a plane Thursday evening, fly to LA or New York or wherever they needed me. And I could do, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, in one of the bigger cities. And so that's how, that's how my life was working. I was on a red carpet three days a week and I would come back to a cubicle, you know, four days of the week. And it became very mentally straining for me, very different worlds. Let's talk about that because one of the things that a lot of listeners to this podcast have in common is they have some kind of public profile. They're either running a church, running a company, they're on a platform and sure it's not the bachelor it's not that level. There's no red carpets, but you know, they're used to being in a fishbowl. Yeah. So I'd love to get before we pick up with the story, you know, what are what are some highs and lows of behind the scenes? Because most of us, myself included, rarely step behind the camera. I hosted a national TV show as a guest host for a couple of years, and that's about it. It was like drive into the studio, do a couple hours of taping and drive home. It's pretty easy at Toronto Studio. But, um, you know, most of us, we always live on this side of the camera. So what is it like behind the scenes? And then I want to get into what is it, was it like having that level of celebrity? 
playing into your podcast title, Almost Famous, which is yeah, which is cool. Point. It's just, uh, you know, I think that's how a lot of people in this listening to this show are. They're almost famous. You know, they're famous in their yeah. town. They're famous in their church. They're famous in their company. Almost famous, not quite the profile. So some, let's start with behind the scenes stories. What are, what are some reality checks for what it's really like and highs and lows behind the scenes? Well, you know, the, the, the show that I was on is, is very um, intrusive. You know, you sign up to be intruded upon. Correct. And, uh, you know, some of your listeners right now are probably like, I can't believe that somebody that today um, not only still is um, proud of that season of my life, it's not a huge part of my life anymore, um, but I don't regret it by any means. And I could explain why, but as a Christian or somebody with any faith tradition, how in the world would you agree to go on this show? That was a lot of the response okay, that was I was getting. That was one getting. of my questions, actually. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, the show's kind of about sex, right? It's definitely about a lot of that. So it is. how did you navigate that? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think as the lead, and, and the show's very good about this, is you create the environment that you want to create to find your partner. Now, do I think it's the best way to find your partner? No, I didn't find my wife through the show. Uh, yeah. I did not. So I'm married now to somebody that did not come from the show. And in fact, I don't know if she's ever seen a season of the show. Uh, but you, you create the environment you want. You create the conversations you want. You create kind of the, the boundaries that you think are healthy and not healthy. And then you engage in dating multiple people at one time. That's weird. I will never tell you that's not odd. It's very untraditional. Um, it's very unique. I don't know if it's healthy, but that's what you do. And uh, sort of behind the scenes, to answer your first question when it comes to this show, is you show everything, right? You show, you know, these conversations are people that, with people that you hope could be your partner. And so you're telling them about your biggest insecurities, your the things that make you you. Uh, you know, you're crying. You know, I shared a lot of tears because you're emotional. Um, you're kissing. And then there's microphones when you're kissing so that there's enhanced noise um, and you can do hear you just it. eventually blur that out. Like, do you yeah. stop seeing the camera and the microphone? Yeah, it's very. It, and that was, you know, where I was going was it gets very weird how uh, within a few days uh, you get very comfortable having a camera on you. You wow. give you don't think about it. Uh, it's gone in your mind. And even though there's 20 people with four different cameras and there's audio and there's producers standing around you as you're on this date, uh, you can really forget about it. And I think, I don't know. I, I think the good part of that is you become very present in the moment with who mm -hmm. you're with. Uh, the negative is obviously, it's just weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and yeah. so, but you become very present because you can't, you can't focus on who's there and who's watching and who's not watching. You're trying to do your best to go through this and make it healthy if you can. Right. Um, and so that's what I took away, I guess, is just to be more present in that moment. Now, well, yeah. Any follow up there? No, go ahead. I mean, you mentioned crying. I think it was your vulnerability that kind of won you over. Right. Like that one, won the cast and the crew mm -hmm. over and the invitation, because you said, I forget exactly what it was, but like, I don't fit in or I feel like I feel I don't unlovable. Belong. 
Yeah, you feel unlovable. That's the word. Okay, that's yeah. a big one. Uh, yeah. And that kind of shifted the tone and opened mm-hmm. up the door for you to come back. It really did. And uh, I remember the moment. So one of the producers became a really good friend of mine. And a few weeks into the show, he had uh, pulled me aside and goes, Ben, I don't like you. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Like, I don't know if I've ever had anybody in my life. I mean, people might've said that behind my back, but they never said it to my face. Um, and he said, I don't like you. And I said, okay. Uh, took me back. And I said, why? He goes, cause I don't know you. You don't let me get to know you. And the show was very weird for me at first. Um, I was very uncomfortable in the environment and, uh, you know, there's professional athletes and there's doctors and there's business owners and, you know, there's models all in this room. And then there's me, who's a user manual writer from Denver, Colorado, who grew up in the Midwest. And I'm sitting there going, I, and it, I, I think it's a fair thought. I don't belong. Yeah. And, and like it, how and to lose way, chapter one, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't yeah. fit in here. This is, this uh, is not a space for me to thrive. And I think that was fair. I don't think that's untrue. I don't think I fit in. But I was enjoying it. I was enjoying getting to know these people. And when he said this, it took me back. And I went back up to my my bedroom and I laid down on the bed and I was thinking about what he said. And, and he was right. And so my whole life, Carrie, I'd spent um, speaking up when I felt like it was a safe space to speak up on. Right. I could say the right thing at the right time. And I could stay quiet when I felt like I wasn't going to say the right thing or fit in or share too much. Uh, I was a wallflower. I was really good at being a chameleon in whatever environment I needed to be a chameleon in and not being seen necessarily, not being known, but just being there, being present, right? And so he wasn't wrong, but that's kind of where he left it. And so I took from that conversation, hey, I want to get more involved. So I started to try and, and I don't know if it was successful or not. Well, flash forward a few weeks, the same guy calls me in And he starts asking me questions about me, questions that nobody's ever asked me. Uh, And I don't know what that necessarily means for my life and who was involved in my life at the time, but nobody had asked me the questions um, that he was asking me. And this is what we call an ITM. So it's in a room with a camera, you're being interviewed, but you don't really know you're being interviewed because it's only one camera and it's really dark. And the lights on you stand for in the moment. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So they're in the moment kind of, you'll see it during the show. You see it during a lot of shows where all of a sudden they flash to a contestant being interviewed and you wonder how they're speaking to the things in present tense. And that's why they're being pulled aside and said, sitting here. Well, this ITM was happening and it happened for three hours, which is very uncommon. And at the end of it, all of a sudden he broke me. And I said, the reason that I am the way I am is because I feel unlovable or I, maybe I feel unlikable or I feel like if people really got to know me, they would like me less. Mm. And it was a truth. It's still an insecurity of mine. It's still something that, you know, I've had to battle with and work through and, and find uh, tools to, you know, maybe compensate for or heal with. But I said, I feel unlovable. And he goes, Ben, that's what you need to tell her which at the time was a bachelorette. And so I did, I said, Hey, if I've been weird, if I've been odd, if I felt distant, it's not you. It's because I feel like the more you'll get to know me, the less you're like me. And that scares me. And it's not just you. It's with everybody in my life. Um, the closest of people to me. Well, I said it and then I went home, right? I got, I actually got kicked off the show like a couple of days later. Um, 
And the show started to air and I got really nervous for this episode to air on national television. I got really anxious because I felt like, hey, this was something that was very personal to me and a very real deal for me. And I didn't know how to necessarily speak to it. And now the world's going to know. And I don't know if I'm ready for the world to know. I don't know if I'm ready for the world to, you know, think through this with me or to critique that or criticize me within that. Um, One little side note. Uh, people love to hate on The Bachelor. I get it. It's fair. Um, you know, And they love to criticize the contestants that go on the show. I get it. That's fair. Um, but I, didn't, I wasn't ready for people to criticize this. Uh, I wasn't ready to have my heart open to this. And, and the response to that episode when I said that was incredible. Uh, people uh, responded in ways I never knew people could respond. Typically, I was used to people being pretty mean on social media. But the, the love and support, and then also maybe even more impactful than that was the stories of others writing me saying, hey, I feel this way too. How are you dealing with it? What, what are you doing about this? Um, I feel unknown. I feel unseen. I feel like I can barely like myself. And so how would I expect anybody else to like me? And at that moment, my life changed. It will, it will be the pivot point to my world on that when the night that episode aired because it gave me insight into not only who I am, but it gave me a community of people around me that said, me too, I'm in it. I'm there. Um, I feel it also. And so that kind of cat, yeah, it did. It became my storyline, uh, good or bad, but it became my storyline of a guy who went on this reality show who also doesn't feel like he belongs. And I think the reason it stuck was because it was real. Um, because it was true, because people could pick up on it, even through the, my my language or my behaviors, they could see that I just, I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, yeah, God spoke to me in that moment. He it, Something inside of me said, this is your calling to to be an advocate, but also to to bring people together. Because if you feel alone and others feel alone, then maybe the common thread through this is your insecurities might connect you um, in a beautiful way. And by sharing that in common, you aren't alone that other people can understand. Yeah. And I'm, that's one of the things I really wanted to drill down on with you because in your book alone in plain sight, you talk about feeling insecure from a very young age and you've had a lot of time to process, to unpack, you know, that fourth month. And then obviously years since that bachelor episode of your life closed Tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about that feeling that you don't belong, you're an outsider, you're alone, you're unlovable. Where did that start? When do you first know you felt that way? You know, I think part of it was being an only child. I think it's obvious that, you know, I grew up in a household with uh, adults who did love me and did invite me into their life. Uh, But a lot of my childhood was spent hanging out with other adults. And so, you know, those adults were wise in how they spoke to a child. Um, They were caring and considerate to me. They also gave me a place of full acceptance. It wasn't until I walked into school at a young age. And and it's funny now that I've written the book and started speaking about this. You know, I felt silly at first that, you know, I think this insecurity popped up when I was probably seven years old. Um, but now that I'm understanding more of insecurities, most mm-hmm. adults are processing traumas or situations 
that happened as a very young child. And now they're just starting to bring it to light. And so I don't feel as silly about this now. It feels very important to me, but um, school was the first place that I felt, I think, rejection. And there's this moment in in time, and I write about it in the book, but I was in a a reading class uh, in elementary school. And the teacher at the time said, hey, everybody pick a partner to read with. And this was early on that year. And everybody in the class got chosen except me. And so I was the one odd man out. And I remember asking people, do you want to be my partner? No, sorry, I'm going with them. Sorry, I'm going with them, whatever. You know, maybe somebody, I don't remember exactly, but somebody in that maybe said something like, no, I don't want to go with you. And so the teacher came to me and said, hey, looks like you're my partner today. And it hit me that I was the odd man out, that I was left aside, that I was pushed aside. And I think at that moment, maybe I just didn't have the tools to heal from that or to understand what the situation was, or maybe the reality was that I was the odd man out in that classroom. Maybe I didn't have the friends I thought. And something I still do today is I assume I'm closer to people than they believe we are Hmm. because of just, I think how I grew up. I just always assumed that everybody was my friend, that everybody, we all were going to hang out. And I assume that I'm closer to people than they believe we are. And so I think it really hurt me when I realized that these people who I thought I was very close with, these kids who I thought was, I was very close with, really maybe didn't like me. Um, and that became a thread line. If I maybe yeah. uh, proved it myself and lived into it my whole life, or if it was true to me, it became a thread line for how I saw the world and how I saw um, my relationships. No, you know, I think a lot of leaders can relate to that, Ben. And, you know, I've got a story that that isn't the same, but it's got similar vibes. I confused love with performance. The harder you work, the more you are loved. And that creates all kinds of of problems in your life. Um, Let's talk a little bit about those years of fame. You know, the almost famous idea for a podcast is quite good. And you co-host that with another uh, bachelorette alumnus. Yeah. So it, it's kind of fun. I mean, do you still get recognized when you're out at a restaurant or at an airport? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, Definitely. but it's a, yeah, it, it, there's not really, if I'm out in public, I mean, the show at the time was getting about 12 million viewers. And so it's a big audience, but that's only 12 million viewers. If you didn't watch the show, you have no clue who I am. Um, yep. and, uh, and so you're, you're, you are, you're almost famous and you're only on the show for a year. And you don't have any like skill sets that really brought you to this show. You kind of just got chosen. And so I'm not an artist. Um, I'm not an entertainer. So I do get recognized, but I'm very, it was very much a season of being almost famous. Right. So when, when the show was at its peak 2016 to 2017, I think was your season. Uh, Was it like you couldn't leave the house without being stopped or how did that go? I'm just gauging it a little bit. And then I want to go deeper. Well, when the show was airing, there was definitely an excitement. And I was living in a little house on the main road in Denver, like downtown Denver. And everybody knew where my house was because we filmed some stuff there. And so, you know, yes, when you are on the show and you are the person for that time, there are paparazzi, there are people parked out front, there are people coming by, there are people knocking on your door. Um, That was definitely a a very different season than I live in today. But yes, at the time it was, it, it felt like, uh, the world was watching me. Well, you can relate to being a pastor then. 
because if you're the pastor of a large church or in a small town, uh, people know where you live. They're yeah. driving by your house. They feel like they have access to you. What did that do to you on the inside? Definitely. Well, I spend a lot of my life now working with other pastors, and uh, there's a reason I've, I'm not one. Um, so, mm-hmm. hey, mm-hmm. to any pastor listening, I have a lot of respect for you. I don't know how you do it. Um, but I do, I, I have seen, um, pieces of what I imagine your life looks like. The, the benefit to my world compared to yours is I have to talk about relationships and that's about it. Um, you have to talk about the, the, the really hard, heavy things of people's lives. And I just want to take a second and say, just, there's a special place for you because mm. that's tough. Um, You know, I think for my insides, at first it was really exciting, Uh, almost euphoric. It was, um, there there was this like almost glow to life. And I started to live into it a little bit where I would go out and, you know, kind of look to see who was looking. Who's looking at me? Yeah, who's looking at me? Who knows I'm here? Um, Which is not a good good person to be around. And it's not a lot, you know, you don't make a lot of friends being that guy. But... um, there, there was a, a period that was exciting. And I remember a moment though, uh, where I was in Los Angeles on a red carpet for a really big award show. I came back home, I flew to Denver and I was sitting in the airport and I was calling my family and a couple of my buddies to tell them about who I'd met and what I'd done. And they were excited, but they, they weren't reaching the level of excitement. I don't, I don't know what I was expecting. They weren't reaching the what I was expecting them to say to me, right? They weren't uh, yep. accepting me or loving me anymore because of my experiences. And I got frustrated and the frustration turned into resentment towards them. And the resentment towards them turned into resent- resentment towards myself. And I, at that, this was all happening very quickly and uh, internally for me. And I realized I'd done all this stuff alone. That as cool as all of it was, that nobody could share in my experience with me. Nobody could relate in my experience with me. I was doing all of this alone. And that I was creating these stories that I always wanted to create, but that I had no place to share them. Uh, That nobody cared how cool I was or how famous I was, especially my friends from middle school or my family. Nobody, Nobody cared who I was and what I was doing. They cared about me personally. And they just wanted to make sure I was good. And they kept asking me, are you good? You okay? And that's another pivot point for me. It's where now, you know, a lot of my life today, uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing, but I just felt very alone. Uh, And then the critiques happened. I was 25 years old, uh, living in this town still with not a lot of friends, not really knowing anybody. And the critiques happened and my safe place was my church. It was, and everybody around me knew that, you know, I had a really safe place and, and, uh, you know, my faith has always been something not just important to me, but very real for me. And very, um, if you take my faith away, you, you've taken everything because anything I've done has been based on, on my belief that there is a God that loves me, that has accepted me that cares for me, but also calls me into experiencing this world and and trying um, to care for the outsider. And so if you took that away from me, you've taken everything. And the church became very critical uh, of me. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It was not, it, not maybe my personal church at the time, but just Christians in general became very critical, very judgmental, very much like, um, how could you be on this show, like I said earlier, and claim to be a Christian? How could you claim to want to represent Jesus, um, but be on television? Uh, what, you know, what are you looking for when it comes to answers in this world that you needed this show to make you feel fulfilled when you have Jesus? And these things hurt. These things hurt deeply. Um, and they made me feel like the church wasn't a safe place for me anymore. They made me feel like Christians maybe weren't the the tribe or the group that I could belong to. Um, and so it, it tossed me around for a bit. It, the, you know, I think that the idea of fame and celebrity tossed me around and the clothes, I think the thing, um, I always, I always say this and, and I mean it, you know, I'm not the, a massive Bieber fan, even though he, he is a Canadian. I do <laughs> like some of his music. I don't listen to all of it, but he had a song that came out called Lonely. And I, 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 I don't know. I wept when I heard this song because I can't imagine being Justin Bieber. I'm not Justin mm-hmm. Bieber. I never was even close to Justin Bieber. Um, but this song speaks to, I think any leader or any person in, um, any type of spotlight, because the whole song is about feeling lonely in the midst of all these people watching you, all these people knowing you, all these people wanting a piece of you. And it spoke to me deeply. Um, it did. And I I related with, with him in that moment. And I also related with myself by saying, I just feel lonely. The more famous I become, the more lonelier I feel. Boy, if you're willing to go down that um, a little bit further, I'd love yeah. to explore that because I don't think we've ever really talked about that on this show. There is, and and just because, you know, so many people who listen to the show have a microphone and mm-hmm. whether that's in front of a hundred people or a thousand people or a million people, um, if you've tasted a little bit, you know what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I've had that conversation many, many times. Like we, as, as this grew and what I do right now grew, we, you know, you find yourselves being flown into cities and, mm-hmm. you know, out for dinner with semi-famous people, et cetera. And exactly you sitting in that airport, trying to have a conversation with your friends who have known you for a long time and family and going, man, you'll never believe what just happened. Mm-hmm. And there's almost an unrelatability. Like there's a certain inability of people to understand. And I'm just wondering if you can explore that dynamic a little bit more, because I think I've tasted elements of that too. I think I'm way more at peace with it now than I was seven, eight years ago. But it's a very disconcerting thing because you're like, okay, well, I did this. And, you know, the average person doesn't know, can't relate, doesn't care. You know, it's like, well, the last time you were on the red carpet, it's like, I've never been on a red carpet other than the one in my grandmother's living room. You know, she had a red carpet. Uh, what what was that dynamic like for you, Ben? I, I don't mind exploring it at all. I mean, yeah. Uh, and and I don't want any of this to come off as uh, a victim here of anything. I, this was no, a really no, no, no. great life experience for me. And uh, there's a lot of good that's that came from it and is still coming from it. And so, but personally for me and, and my story and how I was seeing it at the time and maybe how I still see it today, um, you taste it and it's sweet. Mm. Um, you get people that want to be around you that want to, um, 
you know, be in your presence that, that want to follow you. It's a very odd thing. Uh, I remember speaking at a church about two years after the show and I had been this, been to this church many times. And I said, you know, it's really weird. What I'm going to share today with all of you has been on my heart for five years, but you're just now willing to listen because I was on a reality television show and you saw me kiss people. It's very different now, right? It's very different than now you're willing to listen to me because of the platform that was handed to me. So, you know, my first question to the group was how many people out there have a story that they want to share or something on their heart that maybe we're not listening to because what, we don't respect them because they, they don't have a platform or because they're not quote unquote famous. Um, so it was weird for me to all of a sudden have a voice. It's also exciting for me to have a voice. I don't know if I knew yet what I was going to do without voice. So that was one side. Um, uh, the other side to uh, the fame, and one of my buddies who is, is a little more conservative than I am um, shared with me, he goes, I think there was only one name meant to be famous, and that was Jesus. Like, there's only one name that really is meant to be famous. Now, I would agree. I don't think fame's a bad thing. I don't think it's necessarily an evil thing. I think there's a lot of good that comes from having a platform and having a voice. But I don't know if there's any human that I've ever met, no matter how famous or not, or how long they've been famous, that knows how to handle it. I haven't met one person <laughs> who's like, yeah. yeah, this is how you this is how you tread this water. It's easy. I also think for me, I struggled with the narcissistic side of fame. Sure. Um, the infatuation with being known and being seen and and wanting to be more seen. And I had a whole team of people at the time built around me to keep me relevant is what they would say. That's kind of our mission statement. And so relevance was being in the headlines. However, you needed to be in the headlines. If it was through a breakup, it was, if it was through a, a mean comment that you made, if it was through a controversial comment you made, it was just good. Just be relevant. Just be out there. Um, and so you start to chase that relevancy. You start to chase creating a story. You start to chase creating a headline which in turn makes you always be looking for the next opportunity to have somebody focus on what you're doing, which changes your personality, which changes how you treat people, which changes how you treat social situations. You're always focused. If that's what people are nailing into you, hey, be relevant. You're always trying to be relevant. How can I get a good picture with this person? How can I you know, be seen by the paparazzi at this time? Who's in this, who at this moment can I say just something controversial enough that they're going to share it with the media that my name's going to be at the headline? Ben Higgins says this. It changes the way you operate and it objectifies every human because everybody's an opportunity. Everybody's an object for your consumption and for your worth and for you to become more famous and to become more relevant. And so everybody's an object for you. Nobody is just a human that you just want to sit with. And that's at least my story. That's who I was. Mm -hmm. That's that's what was going on in my life. And over time, all of a sudden, when you're on this show, fame fades. There's a new person the next year. Yeah. Um, and you're less relevant than you were before just by default. It's how, it th how things work. And then the next year, there's a new person and you're less relevant just by default. And there was a period in my life, and, and I've spoken very publicly about this, um, but it happened in July about three years ago, where all of a sudden I stopped getting the amount of phone calls I was getting before, and I stopped getting the hosting opportunities I was getting before, and I stopped getting in the headlines like I was before. And it felt like I, uh, 
I had met my now wife at the time. So we were dating and it felt like, you know, I was always known as the single guy and maybe the headline was who I was dating or, or what date I was going out with. And now I, you know, I'd met my partner and I and knew she was going to be my wife. And so I was di divorcing and separating myself from the idea that I was going to be, you know, single any longer. Um, and so maybe the headlines were harder for me to make. And I went and Higgins happy in love. Yeah. It's not a great headline. There's the story. There's mm -hmm. no story there. And it happened in July. So remember I flew home from Denver and, and to Indiana to be at my, my family's house, which is on a lake, which is very calming for me. And I said, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I need to be here. And, um, I went into a deep state of confusion, I think, and anxiety and mm -hmm. desperation because, uh, I knew something hit me at that moment. I, you can say what it is. Again, I don't want to over-Christianize this stuff. No, go ahead. Um, but there was something inside of me telling me, Ben, you're going to have to really get used to not being sought after and as known um, in, in, this, in, in the world that you're operating in and that you're used to operating in. And that was really hard for me. Um, it was really hard for me to, to get to a place where I felt comfortable just being me again um, and just being known for who I was and how I was treating people. It was a re it, it, the fame had infatuated me and it's been so much of my gotten so much inside my soul um, that I was an addict to it. And that as I was ripping it out of my life, it was really hard. Um, it was really hard to settle back into a place where I was just going to be known and loved as me. How did you do that? How did how did you disentangle yourself from fame? Um, a lot of work with some you know, counselors, uh, and family and friends, a lot of speaking, speaking this out. And, and at the time I had one thing I did have was the ability to speak to my emotions and the vulnerability and the openness. I wasn't scared because of the show really to speak to some of this stuff and share what was on my heart, but also kind of just having the dark night of the soul, like having those moments of feeling it, it, this isn't that terrible of a story. What, you, you know, people are listening like, wait, this, you're just ripping yourself from fame, but to relate maybe a little bit, what if you're a pastor of a church and maybe you resign or get fired or maybe just maybe something happens and they replace you with the younger, cooler version and you're now on the sidelines. And I know somebody out there can say, yeah, I felt this, right? I've seen my baby, my creation, the thing that I've held onto so tightly get ripped from my hands. And now I don't know who to be and how to be and how to help. And so, you know, for me, this is my story. Maybe somebody can relate with the idea of sitting in the dark nights of the soul, sitting in the place of what I felt like was at the low of lows, sitting in a place where I felt like once again, I was unlovable. And the only reason people liked me was because I was on this show and because I had a platform and because maybe I was known so many friendships had starting to like slowly disappear. People stopped asking me to hang out because maybe I wasn't as relevant as I was before. People stopped looking for me for wisdom and advice. Maybe somebody can relate with that, right? A pastor who no longer has the head seat um, and, and stands mm -hmm. on the stage every day. Maybe somebody, maybe it's quieter in your life than it was before. Um, maybe you feel less you know, useful than you did before. And that's how I was feeling. And it made me go into a lot of questions about myself, a lot of questions about what all this was for, like what the last few years had even been about, why I had put myself up for it, if it was good or bad, or if it was helpful at any level, or if anybody ever benefited from it, including myself. Um, I 
asked a lot of the questions of God, where are you at in this? Like, wh- what is, you know, wh- why, wh- why is this happening? And so it was just a lot of those questions. And then from there, when, when I sat in that long enough and I allowed myself to sit in that pain and confusion and loneliness long enough, um, people started to sp- not speak to me, but speak into me. People started to remind me who I was and slowly but surely I started to build those, you know, those bricks back. And I was able to kind of rise back up from that spot, a better man, a better human, Mm -hmm. a better friend, a better son. Um, I hope a better husband, you'd have to ask my wife. Um, But I started to rise up from it. And and from that period of life, I realized that these, these really heavy, dark, what they feel like are dark, almost desperate times are the moments where I've learned the most. I've grown the most. I've allowed myself to hear and listen the most and learn from others and and from God the most. And so a lot of time in contemplation, a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time listening to the voices around me. And uh, it, it wasn't immediate and I allowed myself to sit in it, but slowly but surely I came out of it. How old were you in 2019? Uh, Well, uh, 29 years old. Holy cow. What a gift yeah. to get that insight at 29. I'm very thankful for it, right? I mean, yeah. Very thankful for this like really odd season of life that so much changed and marked me and taught me and showed me so much about the world. And it all happened in my 20s. You know, some people in their 20s are able to like maybe have a little more fun than I did because I stopped like going out with my friends. I I started to stay in more because I didn't, I I am an introvert and I don't want to be talking all the time, but I, I, I learned so much. Yeah. No, you know, I'm, and I'm so glad you went there and were willing to unpack that because you have no idea how many 55-year-olds hmm. are sitting in fear of what you just talked about or 72-year-old leaders who won't give up the company or won't give up the senior pastor role because hmm. they're afraid of slipping into irrelevancy. Hmm. And, you know, I talked to a mentor of mine who's in his 80s when I was stepping down from the church that I started. And I said, what's your biggest, well, he gave me a bunch of stuff, but the one that really stuck with me is like, they forget you quickly. Mm. And you're right, right? Yeah. Like, you know, when you're the bachelor in 2017, 2018 is different, 2022, it's like, oh, there's that guy that was on that show back in the 2010s, mm-hmm. right? And eventually yeah. you get there. So is there any part of your former platform, notoriety, fame that you miss? Is there any part of that season of your, I know you're grateful for it and it was a mixed bag, but is there any part that it's like, oh gosh, I wish people still stopped me on the street more. I wish uh, I had this more or you're like, no, that was a good season. I'm moving on. Um, I don't know if if I'm honest with you, maybe somebody can relate listening. I I miss being paid to show up. I, I, uh, that's fair. That's fair. I had a tagline at the time. I mean, my life just means showing up, right? I don't have any skill set. Wow. So all they're paying me to do is be there. Um, I missed that. That was That's nice. honest. Yeah. That's honest. And yeah. and maybe somebody can relate, right? Like if you are a senior pastor, if you are a leader and a CEO, you're getting paid oftentimes to speak to stuff you know really well. And, um, and then once you're done with that, like you stop getting paid to do that. Like financially, that was a really good season of life. Uh, and I, and I mean that when I, when I say I do miss that. Piece. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. you know, maybe a little more in, in, internally to me. Um, no, I don't, I, I don't miss it. I just told my wife this the other day, 
you know, I'm still traveling a lot for the stuff I'm doing now and uh, not necessarily standing on the, on the biggest stages. Uh, these are a lot of just like regular business meetings and a lot of like um, gatherings. And I'm home a lot more. And I have a dog now uh, and I have a wife now. And I told her, I, I don't know if I've been this um, happily content in six years, seven, eight years of my life. I mean, I, I really, I, you know, it was not easy to get to this place. It took a lot of work to get here. And as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, that was a very hard time to kind of release the, the idea that I was going to be famous forever, you know, or that I was going to be sought after forever or whatever. Um, but now that I sit in this seat and we've done that work, um, I'm really happy and I'm really good and I don't miss it at all. I get that. I really do. You know, you talked about all the people who wanted to be around you because of the show you were on or because of what you represented or, you know, all these people who suddenly got interested in you. Arthur Brooks, the author, has uh, an interesting phrase for it, real friends and deal friends. So deal friends are the people that hang around because you're the bachelor, because you're the pastor of a church or the CEO of a company, or you wrote a book that sold well, or you host a podcast or whatever. And some of them feel like real friends, right? You're like, oh, yeah. look at all these people I know. But you, you get to a point like, you know, I often think I led a church to three or 4,000 people and I'm not leading it anymore. But we have like, and I have lots of friends, like lots of people are super friendly. It's not bad. It's still our church. But like out of that, there's three to five really good friendships that have endured. Um, I don't know that you've had a similar experience. And what would be your sifting, your separating, not the wheat from the chaff. That's not what I'm trying to say, but just, you know, who are the deal friends and who are the real friends? Do you have mm -hmm. any um, hindsight that can give people who are in that moment right now mm -hmm. uh, guideposts to say, ah, this is a sign of a deal friend and here's what your real friends are doing in the midst of it all? Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, and I want to pause for a second and say, I hope, you know, I'm 33 years old. There's a 72-year-old listening to this, who was trying to figure out how to have a transition in life. Um, you know, I don't know how much of this you want to listen to me on, right? I don't, I'm not, <laughs> fair, I'm not, fair. I'm not, uh, I'm not yeah. here to tell you that I get life at 33. I'm learning something all the time. And I'm sure if I sat with that person who's listening to this, they could teach me so much and, and that would be awesome. But, you know, I did have a weird early life experience that was very influential and very exciting and very enthralling. And I will say to, to answer your question, if you're in this and you're feeling like you're having that dark, heavy, confusing separation from whatever it is, that transition, there's really great things ahead. And I hope that's encouraging to them. I, I hope it's encouraging to, to, to somebody out there that there's, it might be really hard for a while and you might feel like, no, my experience is different and this is going to be hard forever. Um, but it's not, I promise it just takes work and it takes some grit and it takes some determination and it takes some real raw, um, realness, you know, to get to this place. But it might be also, if you've been in leadership and you've kind of been in the spotlight for a while, it might be one of the most 
um, real experiences that you've had in years. And I think that in a sense is exciting. And I think it can bring you closer to whatever your belief system or to whatever you find at your core that keeps you going forward. I think this can be a really exciting time too, where you're going to become out of it a better person. Um, so the real friends versus uh, dear friends. That's great. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Real and deal. And yeah. I would just say, uh, you know, a little addendum to what you just said. And thank you for saying that. I got 25 years on you. So I haven't hit my 60s or my 70s by any stretch. But human issues are human issues. Mm. And when you were talking about your whole experience over the last seven, eight years, it's so resonated. And I think dynamics are dynamics. And people have been lonely in the spotlight as long as there have been humans. Mm. And um, I'm you know, I think about some of the things I saw in my 20s and now that I'm living through them in my 50s, I'm like, oh yeah, I saw this in people 30 years older than me when I was in my 20s and uh, it is what it appeared to be. And you learn some things along the way too. But yeah, real versus deal friends. I mean, now, you know, people are more around you uh, because you're Ben. Yeah. They like Ben. So how do you sift that? Well, one of the things that happened during this season of really heaviness and I, I spoke to a little bit is I was given the advice from somebody a lot older than older than me to pick um, a few people in my life and ask them to be the accountability to me, to give me real truths, good and bad. Like tell if if I'm being criticized by the public to speak into me and say, no, just your intentions were good, keep going. Or maybe they need to say, yeah, check yourself. Why did you do that? Um, and so that's one way that I marked this was I asked those friends, can you be that to me? Now, what an honor it is to be asked that yourself, you know, to say, I trust you enough with my, uh, you know, mental health and emotional health um, that I'm going to ask you to speak truth into me. Don't just sugarcoat things. I don't need you to just tell me I'm great. I need you to tell me how you see me and how you think others are seeing me and how you think I'm treating people. So that was one way I kind of sifted it and dealt with it is when I asked, you know, did they say yes or no? Could they be that for me? And did they hold themselves true to that when I called them to say, hey, um, this is what I'm dealing with? You know, and it could be some family, can be some friends, but it's a small group that just know me uh, and know me now, you know, maybe as a husband. Like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Um, I'm really mad at my wife today and I'm like really resentful towards, towards her. How do I speak to her about this? Or do I, or am I crazy here? Like, this is a really helpful thing that's been a part of my life. And it's made me um, a lot better uh, because I get wisdom and I get spoken into. I also think um, there's a piece where at the time it's, what are people asking for of me? Um, that was a question, you know, are they asking me to always, are, are they just like pouring themselves out on me all the time and asking for my response? Are they ever asking how I'm doing? Do I, and when they ask, do they really care? Is there follow-up questions? Is there, is there any intention on getting to know me? Or are they just continuing to pull from me all the time? That's mm. one way to see it. Do they actually show any interest, any interest in who I am and, and who I want to become? Or filter. And, and, and it's hard to decipher at times because a lot of times these people would pour out their own, like, um, emotions and their own insecurities on me, which is fair at, you know, and, and it's okay. But is that what they're doing consistently? Like, does there, does there ever seem to be any like feedback because a relationship goes both ways. So are they just always pulling from me? Um, 
or are they ever asking, like giving me any piece of, of life breathing, you know, insight or a listening ear or a caring ear. So that's one other, that's one way. And then, um, who's willing to sit around in the boring times with you? Like who's willing to, uh, to, to not be around maybe if like you're not paying for dinner or if you're not going to a cool event, who's willing just to be there? Like who's willing to sit beside you, um, as you watch a football game or just to come up and have a drink and talk about life with you, um, who's willing to be that to you? That, that was another way. Um, and then finally, um, I think my biggest, my biggest filter still to this day, um, is who wants to check in. Um, Mm. you know, I have a list on my phone of friends that I like to text and call consistently and make sure I'm doing it, but who's checking in on me? Uh, who's, Who's really interested in, in how I'm doing? And maybe that's just the purpose of our time together is just to check in. Um, and I'm hoping I'm giving them back, that back in return by checking in on them. But who's checking in on you? Who's, who's asking those questions? My family does a really good job at that. It's just to call and say, hey, how you doing? What's cool about your life today? What's hard about your life today? Um, I, you know, there's something that I've learned, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about the expectations and the response of uh, when you when you tell people about really cool moments or really good successes. And I don't mean this to sound um, pessimistic towards humans and the world, but there's something really interesting that I found when I wrote Alone in Plain Sight. You know, we're really, uh, we're really bad at celebrating each other, I think. I think it's really hard for us, no matter how good, like, you know, um, Scripture talks about celebrating when it's necessary and mourning with people when it's necessary as well. And I think it's really hard to celebrate. At least it is for me. I hear, you know, my fr- maybe maybe I've not gotten a paycheck in six months and I hear my friends tell me that they're, you know, thriving. And, I, and I'm excited for them. I don't want them to not be thriving. But it's hard for me in that moment not to think about myself and to say, man, how do you know, be envious and jealous. But I actually think we're really good at, at mourning with people. And I don't think that's because we like to see other people in pain. I just think that we, we feel so much of what maybe they're feeling in that moment that we're just really, um, really good at sitting with people and relating with people and having empathy with people. At least that's how I've recognized it in my own life. And so I don't necessarily look for people who are really good at celebrating me. In fact, a lot of my my moments of celebration, I either keep to myself or share with my wife who, you know, we're a unit. And so when I, something good happens to me, something good's happened to her and vice versa. Um, and so I don't necessarily put that as a filter who's saying, Hey, who's like, who's just so happy for me right now. Uh, it's really, my filter is like, who really wants to sit with me when times are tough? Like who wants to hear me cry and see me cry and, and see me, you know, pull my hair out at, you know, confusion. That's maybe, maybe my best filter is, is who's there when times are the hardest. Hmm. You know, those are some really good filters and uh, again, wonderful to have figured all that stuff out uh, or at least be figuring it out at your age. So I want to ask a couple more questions. Yeah. Same, same. So, you know, you did get engaged. This isn't Mm -hmm. a spoiler on the bachelor 
Yeah. That spun its own reality TV show for about a season or so. And you ended up being the most Googled breakup on the internet in 2017. Is that actually true? Were you among? Oh, yeah. yeah. Got a little sheet yeah. for it. Got a sheet for it. So, you know, literally millions of people mm-hmm. are following this relationship. And then you find your now wife, totally mm-hmm. off screen, different story. I'd love to know about the dynamics the different dynamics you experienced between that first engagement and then the one that ultimately led to marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because again, the cameras were following you around Mm -hmm. during that entire relationship. Yeah. Uh, One one piece of advice, if you ever find yourself uh, newly engaged to somebody you met on a show and you don't even have their phone number, don't sign up to film a show right afterwards where (laughs) more cameras will be around. That can ruin a relationship very quickly. Um, Oh man. You know, I was, I, I think that period of my life um, with the person I met on the show is an incredible part of my life. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, so, I'm so thankful for it. Now, it didn't work out. And I'm, I'm very, you know, actually thankful it didn't work out because she's now married with two kids. I'm very happily married to an amazing, amazing partner who loves me so much um, and tells me that and shows me that. But I had a lot to learn. Uh, because there were, were things inside my first relationship that I thought I, um, could just settle for. And I think she thought the same thing. This is not, I think this was like both going both ways. There were, there were things like, um, unshared interests or like not necessarily seeing, um, how we need to treat people and how we should be treating people. Maybe what we're investing our time into and these are things I was like, you know what? It's just marriage. People kept telling me, you know, I, unfortunately I had a, a lot of people around me at the time that were like, marriage just is hard. Don't get married. It's kind of what they were saying. Like, right, you right. know, and these are even, you know, people within my church community who are like, Hey, the Bible even says like, I don't know if it's smart to get married, like just be single forever. It's a lot easier. Um, and so I always just thought marriage was hard. Like that's kind of the word I would say is like, I'm making this commitment and I'm, gonna, you know, I'm making my life more difficult by doing it, which kind of felt like what I was signing up for and how I, what I needed to do. And you knew that going in. Yeah. Usually people find that out on the other side of marriage, but you kind of knew that engagement. Yeah. And, um, so there were just some things there. There's just like, yeah, that's, if somebody asked me, how's your relationship? It's like, it's hard, but we're making it work. Um, and now with my wife, it's still hard. Marriage is hard. It is difficult, um, but it, there's a joy to the difficulty. There's an excitement to um, the way we're trying to build rhythm together and to build uh, our life together. And um, there's uh, there's this weird thing that happened inside of me where all of a sudden um, I learned to be less selfish in the sense that like, hey, maybe I wasn't always right and I needed to listen to my wife and I should be willing to change if I see, and I don't need to protect my opinion as much anymore because I know where she's coming from is that place that I talked about earlier uh, from somebody that I can confide into. And that's telling me something that she believes is true about me and about our relationship. And maybe I need to listen. And if I listen, there isn't this judgment on me saying, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. Like mm-hmm. I, I need to, I need to be willing to, to change here. I need to be willing to learn what you're saying and hear what you're saying. And there's an excitement for me to do that. Um, and I think that may, that's maybe the biggest takeaway at this season of life is, um, and you can call it like love, or I don't know, maybe what the catalyst this is. Um, but there is a, a humbleness 
um, and a, just a an ability now in my relationship and an excitement to continue to um, be a partner to my wife that she needs me to be and that I want to be and that I'm really excited and willing to do it. And before in my past relationship, maybe I wasn't. I was holding on to too, too many things. And, and again, because I was just saying, yeah, it's hard, but we're going to battle this out. We're going to fight this out. And if we don't agree, hey, that's marriage. Um, I think that piece maybe wasn't true. I don't think it needs to be true. I, I think that means that two people maybe aren't meant for each other. Um, and now there's just a, a willingness and a humbleness and an excitement to try to be better uh, for my wife. Mm. I get that. Three decades into marriage, I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. We have covered a lot of ground and didn't even get into the last five years of your life yeah. with generous coffee, et cetera, okay. et cetera. But um, anything else you want to share before we wrap up today? Well, I can give the overview here. You know, this this was great. Um, but yeah, all this that we talked about, you know, kind of spearheaded me into this new season of life where, you know, I'm working for iHeartRadio on the Almost Famous podcast that you mentioned. It's been an incredible six-year partnership with them. And um, I get to talk about pop culture. I know nothing about pop culture. And that's why I have a co-host who knows everything about pop culture. So my <laughs> job's really easy. Don't know anything. Show up. Um, <laughs> so and, you still get paid to show uh, up. I there still get go. paid to show up. Yeah. Keep us on time. That's what I, that's what I do now. And keep then, us on time. Um, that's great. You know, Generous Coffee is a passion project that we started where we donate 100% of our profits to organizations that are fighting for humans around the world and fight, trying to fight injustice that is facing them. And uh, you can find that at generouscoffee.com. You can read more about it. But that is my my main job um, that I don't get paid for um, because of iHeartRadio and, and the, the things I'm thankful for. And so and then Alone in Plain Sight, as we brought up many times, you know, that book came out during COVID, unfortunately, because that meant that um, the book tour, the whole book is about connecting with yourself, with others, um, in romance and with God. Well, it's really weird then to do a virtual book tour about a book about connecting it kind of goes against <laughs> the message. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, it's something I care deeply about. It's a project that took me a lot of time and a lot of effort. Um, and I'm hoping at the end of it that people read it and just maybe if anything, feel less alone. They feel like there's other people out there or somebody out there that, can relate to them. And those are the, the three major things that are happening right now with me. Um, and you can, you know, Google alone in plain sight, you can go to generouscoffee.com. And if you're into pop culture, which I can't imagine this demo necessarily is maybe, uh, yeah, you could, uh, you could tune into almost famous. Um, you can find it anywhere podcasts, uh, are able to be downloaded. What do you love about podcasting? Because it's not an interview format for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. It's you and your co-host just yeah. riffing off each other. So what do you love about podcasts? Uh, it's it's so much of my life now. I feel like podcasts um, have allowed this space for people to speak. Um, one, they're given more time. You know, they're not, these are not shortcut typically interviews and they're not tr typically, if you're agreeing to it, trying to sway you in one way or another. Um, and it's a, it's allowing a space for humans to speak to humans and share stories. But uh, I like the area podcast. I think if I summed it up, I like learning through podcasts. There's amazing podcasts out there that I can be entertained by and learn different things through. It's a really great platform for storytelling. Um, if it's your own story or if it's another, if it's history or if it's, you know, 
how you make something. It's just a great place to have a story and be able to listen. Yeah. What are you doing with your social these days? I notice you have over a million followers, mm-hmm. so you'd be in the top 1% of mm-hmm. people on social that way, maybe the top half a percent. Um, how are you approaching it now that you, you know, obviously you have a podcast platform, you're the co-founder of a company, uh, but are you just having fun on it these days? Is there still a strategy behind it? What, what are you doing with your social? You know, I, uh, in short, when this platform was handed to me, um, I asked my friends and my family, that close group. And I said, what in the world do you do with this? And, uh, I had one really great buddy of mine who said, um, maybe this whole thing, and this was kind of in that season where I was feeling like, uh, this was kind of pointless, the show and all that. He said, maybe this whole thing wasn't meant to be about you. Maybe it was meant to be about something bigger than yourself. And so the strategy has always been with my platform is to, um, try to share and speak into and educate on the injustices facing the world, um, to share human story. Um, and then also to share, you know, my life, uh, I'm not great at that piece. Uh, my life isn't that exciting. I sit right here most of the day and I talk like this most of the day, and maybe I have some meetings like this most of the day, <laughs> but I try to share my Same. life in, in, in any yeah. ways I can, but it's really, I'm hoping, um, if Instagram went away tomorrow or TikTok or Twitter or whatever, I'm hoping that, um, I could look back on and say, I just use it to point the things bigger than me. Um, and selfishly, because when I do, I'm usually invited into things bigger than me. And that's really fun to be a part of. Um, but then also I feel like there's stories out there and there's people out there that don't maybe have the following, as I said before, but they have a voice and they have a a purpose and they have a passion and maybe my platform can be that for them. Ben, this has been so encouraging. Thank you so, so much. So they can go to the Almost Famous podcast. Uh, Where's a good place to find like everything Ben these Mm days? Well, uh, thebenhiggins.com. I wish it was just benhiggins.com, but that was taken. So I had to do (laughs) thebenhiggins.com. I'm sure there's a Ben Higgins out there that is really upset saying that I'm the only, you know, I'm the one. Um, But that is, that was the best URL that was uh, available. So thebenhiggins.com, you can find everything I'm up to, everything I'm doing, and all these links. That's great. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, sharing from the heart today. It really meant a lot to me. Hey, thank you, Karen. Well, that turned out to be a really fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. And if you did and you want more, uh, we have transcripts for you. We've got show notes and you can find those at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 559. Want to thank our partners. Uh, first of all, check out my Leadership Accelerator program. It's free and it will help you really invest in your leadership. Just a taste of how to lead your team members better, navigate change and create a healthy culture at your church. You can get it for free by going to leadershipaccelerator.church. I would love to build into you. That's leadershipaccelerator.church or simply click the link in the description of this episode. And to learn more about the He Gets Us campaign, check out hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. Well, coming up on the podcast, who have we got? Gretchen Rubin, J.P. 
Okluda, Will Gadara. So excited about that. Caitlin Beatty, Mike Hyatt. Uh, who else have we just booked for the podcast? Man, so many people. Kevin Kelly, one of the most interesting men in the world. Dr. Henry Cloud and a whole lot more. But next episode, it's Erwin McManus. I went to Hollywood, sat down with him for a riveting conversation, stuff he rarely talks about. And here's an excerpt. Some of the biggest church systems in the world have collapsed over the last couple of years. Yeah. And a huge part of it is because they were commander frequencies, singularly commander frequencies. And you would think that people who need a healer frequency wouldn't go to churches that have a commander frequency, but oh, they man. do because they're so broken yeah. that they're willing to be told what to do, but they're not getting healed. And then when there's, and the problem with the commander frequency is that you cannot allow there to be a violation of trust. Because to have a commander frequency, you have to have authority and respect and trust. Yeah. Yeah. And the moment you lose respect and trust, that commander frequency then is seen as dictatorial. Because the shadow side of a commander is a dictator. That's next time on the podcast. Of course, if you're new to the podcast and you haven't subscribed, I would love for you to do that. If you're a regular listener and you enjoyed this, would you leave a rating and review? I would so appreciate that wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just please do that. I am so grateful when you do that. And now before I go, I got to ask, how have you and your team been doing with your 2023 goals? If you put them on the side or you've struggled to maintain your momentum, you're not alone. So I would love to help you. I've got a resource. It's a free goal setting accountability and culture guide. You can go to leadershipaccelerator.church. You'll find that. And in there, I'm going to include two videos that will show you how to help your team crush their goals and create a better team culture. It includes a PDF guide for each so you can apply the teaching to you and your team. Once again, that's leadershipaccelerator.church. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I so appreciate everything that you bring to this podcast. Thanks for your constant feedback, for the shout outs on social. And how about we do it again next time on the podcast? Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier that you're facing. <laughs>